Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 65 my name's Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling and Recovery in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Don't forget, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help support us and gets us a lot of exposure. So I really appreciate it. It's nice to know that people are listening and enjoying the podcast and what I'm doing here. Also, don't forget, join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and just search The Addicted Mind Podcast and uh, join. We have a lot of good conversations going on there about addiction, addiction treatment, and uh, would love to have you be a part of that as well. So my guest today is Dr. Michael Sawyer, and he is a specialist in using ketamine to treat depression, PTSD, and addiction. He goes into a lot of clinical detail in this podcast about how ketamine works, some of the positive parts of it, some of the risks that are associated with it, and it was really fascinating. I love talking about some of these alternative modalities for treating some of our mental health issues that we struggle with and seeing that there's a lot of different ways to get to the same place. So I loved talking with him. He is really passionate. It really comes through in the interview. He's really passionate about doing this and and helping a lot of people out there who are struggling with depression, PTSD, addiction, chronic pain, It's really fascinating as he goes in and talks about all of it. So I think you guys are going to like this interview. Let's go ahead and get it going. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Michael Sawyer, and he is going to talk about ketamine and ketamine treatments for depression, PTSD, addiction. Dr. Sawyer, you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? 
Yes. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Dr. Michael Stoyer. I'm a board-certified uh, ketamine infusion specialist and uh, pain management physician. I did my residency at Harvard Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and uh, in anesthesiology. And then I continued my training in pain management at Cornell New York Hospital in New York City back in the early 90s. And I've been in practice for about 32 years, which seems unbelievable. And um, I got into uh, uh, treatment with ketamine quite by accident. I had been in my training in the 80s when patients had been using, at best, uh, tricyclic antidepressants. It was, um, it's an old, they're old drugs that had a lot of toxic side effects, didn't work very well, but really the only drugs available for treatment of depression in the 80s. And um, uh, shortly after my training, SSRIs, and, and those are serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors that psychiatrists and family physicians oftentimes prescribe for patients with depression. And the beautiful thing about those, those drugs is they were a lot less toxic than the old TCA, the old tricyclic antidepressant drugs. So we made a, a, a major step up in terms of our ability to treat patients with depression, with anxiety disorder, addiction, bipolar disorder, et cetera, by being able to use drugs that were much more effective than the older drugs, uh, but still had a lot of side effects. Well, fast forward about 30 years now, and, and here we are in the, uh, in the teens, and right around 2013, a discovery was made in the medical community, the ketamine connection, the, the drug called ketamine, an old, an old anesthesia drug, it was able to restore patients' moods and help significantly help with depression, with bipolar disorder, and even with um, what's called neuropathic chronic pain. And so it became a, a very useful drug very quickly and has gained tremendous popularity over the past year or two. And then in concert with what I was saying before regarding the, the better side effect profile and treatment efficacy with some of the SSRI drugs that were, invent, that were developed in the early 90s, Prozac being the first one, we now are at the point where we can take these SSRI drugs and, and kind of look down at those uh, using ketamine because one, one thing we found the medical community and, and, and uh, the, the patient community with depression uh, and other mood disorders, one of the things that we found is that these drugs, uh, these SSRI drugs also come with a whole host of side effects, many of which are very unpleasant. Uh, loss of sex drive, loss of libido, weight gain, nausea, headache, et cetera, et cetera. Now, these drugs are way better, way less toxic than the older TCAs, but they still have problems. And one of the, one of the beautiful things about ketamine is that the side effects are almost non-existent. If the side effects are seen, they're seen immediately, and then they go away pretty quickly within you know, the hour or two in comparison to SSRI drugs, which require six to eight weeks to work and also come with a whole host of side effects. So let's let's talk a little for listeners out there that aren't familiar with a lot of these terms and a lot of like SSRI and some of these other uh, terms that you're using. Let's let's define what ketamine is. Can you give us some history of ketamine and and where it's come from and how it was developed? And of course, ketamine was developed in the early '60s by a pharmaceutical company that manufactured it and got a license to distribute it, got DA approval in 1970. It was actually developed as an anesthetic drug to put patients to sleep. And it was one of the things that was very useful about ketamine was that uh, in comparison to some of the other 
anesthesia drugs, which had some significant, very dangerous side effects like sodium pentothal, one of the things that happens is if, you, if you're very dehydrated, if you're having surgery from an injury or from somebody who's had major trauma, one of the things that happens is if you lost a lot of blood from trauma, your blood pressure can fall. You can become shocky. And one of the worst things that can happen is if you put somebody to sleep under those circumstances for emergency surgery, you can really crash somebody's blood pressure and it can be a, a real dangerous problem. One of the nice things about ketamine is that it didn't do that. It didn't drop people's blood pressure. And so it was, it was thought to be a much safer drug. One of the potential problems with, with ketamine, however, was that it was associated with, with hallucination and people didn't like that. As you can imagine, uh, people don't want to wake up surgery from surgery feeling in that way. What we've found over the last few years is that by infusing ketamine in a much, much lower dose than what's used for general surgery in, in an operating room in a hospital or in a surgery center somewhere, by using a much lower dose, one doesn't see the side effects. Uh, the patients don't go to sleep. They don't always hallucinate. And if they do, it's usually not for very long. It's not a major problem over the course of going to the post-infusion um, period. And so it, it's, it, it has really minimal side effects. From a long-term perspective, there are no known long-term side effects at all, unlike you know, the drugs that we, we would compare it to, that we must compare it to in our discussions with patients about what's best for them in treatment of their mood disorders. So this, this drug was first used as an anesthetic, and that's, how, that's what it originally was used for. How did it become, you know, how did, how did people start to discover like, hey, this, this works with somebody who's struggling with depression or PTSD? How did that start to come about? I don't really know. It, it's been used for the last five or six years for that, and it's gained popularity almost on an exponential basis. You see so many more people accessing ketamine treatment in comparison to what was used several years ago. I suspect that ketamine, like many drugs, can be abused because of its hallucinogenic potential. Some people actually like that. And I can only conjecture that maybe somebody in a, in a dance club somewhere that went into the so-called K-hole, that's the, the term used in the community for you know, people who want to hallucinate using ketamine. I think that what, what happened was probably over the course of time, they, they noticed that they were starting to feel better emotionally you know, for maybe days to weeks to months after after that experience. Most people regret what they did in a nightclub. Right. right. In, this case, exactly. in this case, the experience of using ketamine uh, was associated with, with very pleasant after effects, and, and they were very surprising. Right. And, and for a lot of people who are struggling with depression, especially a chronic depression, what, I, what I've heard about this and why I was interested in talking to you about it is people who are really stuck in a treatment-resistant depression, you know, they've gone to therapy, they've tried all these alternative kind of ways to get better from depression, and then they kind of feel stuck. And um, I've heard a lot of people talk about success with ketamine. So what does that kind of look like for, for someone who's coming in with depression and, and people who struggle with addiction a lot of times underlying that is sometimes can be depression and they're using an addiction to alleviate that, that feeling. What would that look like for somebody coming into the office to, to do that? How, how does it work? How does it work neurologically? Well, I guess I, I would love to know that too, but then also on a practical level, if someone was coming in as well and they're sitting with you in your office, what does that look like? So on those two levels, I'd love to talk about both of them. 
Okay. In terms of the experience, I think one of the advantages of ketamine is that it works very quickly in comparison to these SSRI, SNRI. And let me just define those. SSRI stands for serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors. Uh, The way they work is they provide, they, they force the neurons in the brain to have available more uh, serotonin. Serotonin is considered the happy hormone. It's also considered a, a calm hormone. And that's great. It's, it's, one, it's one aspect of treating depression is the serotonin pathway. The norepinephrine pathway is another pathway that uh, some of these drugs utilize. Think of medications like Welbutrin. One of the side effects of Welbutrin is it sometimes makes people a little jittery. Well, that's from the norepinephrine. The norepinephrine on a positive uh, side stimulates people to get up and go. A lot of people who, are with, who have depression feel that their get up and go has gotten up and left. And you know we don't want that. It's, it, it, it can be very hard for people with major depression to get out of bed, to leave the house, to go to work, right. uh, to be able to interact with their friends and, 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 and loved ones. And that's one of the advantages of the SSRIs and the SNRIs in this case. But again, those drugs come with a whole host of side effects uh, whereas ketamine works is very effective for these modalities. They're, they're, it's, it's currently used for what's known as treatment refractory or it's treatment resistant depression. But you know maybe ketamine should be used as first line therapy. It works right away. Works within thirty to forty five minutes. I oftentimes see patients who are having the infusion tell me even though they're a bit uh, sedated from the infusion, they feel much better emotionally. SSRIs, SNRIs take six to eight weeks, eight weeks to work. It is also, ketamine is also thought to be useful for addiction as well. And, and we're gaining more research and more information about that uh, almost on a daily basis. So a person would come in, maybe they've been struggling with this. They walk into your office. I mean, obviously you do a consult and everything, but once they start the treatment, they, how does, what does that look like? They sit down in, in a chair in an office and... Well, they come to our center. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful clinic and we have infusion rooms that are very private. One of the things that uh, patients on ketamine, I think, really appreciate is being in a relaxing, attractive, warm environment. And we have very comfortable infusion chairs that they, uh, they can lie back, almost, uh, almost turning it into a bed, and they can really relax. We give them, give them headphones to listen to music, so People like to bring their own headphones and have their own uh, music. Maybe they want to listen to your podcast while they're having an infusion. Sure. Um, hopefully they're, they're listening to me as well. And uh, it, it's a very relaxing uh, environment. For patients with depression, we usually recommend that they jumpstart the treatment with six infusions, which, which we deliver over the course of two weeks. Uh, so we usually give people six infusions over the course of the first two weeks to basically just sort of jumpstart their brains so they get fairly immediate results, which are a little bit more sustained than one might see with just one infusion. And it really gets people to a place where, you know, the depression, their anxiety, their bipolar symptoms, perhaps their addiction as well, their, their chronic pain, a lot of these symptoms get a lot better right away by jumpstarting with a series of six infusions. And then, you know, people are a little foggy afterwards for maybe an hour, maybe a half hour. Uh, we have a post-infusion uh, room uh, just down the hall from each of the infusion rooms themselves. And the, uh, the post-infusion room is just a nice, attractive, relaxing place for people to, uh, to chill out after their infusion and just recover. And, um, you know, while they're waiting for the ride to come and get them. 
Right. And so it, this sounds like it's, it's, it's pretty quick, like it's pretty fast. So if someone's been struggling with depression and they're, they're, you know, they just have that awful heavy feeling, they sit down and then they pretty much, it sounds like pretty quickly start to feel better, start to feel different. It's really incredible. Uh, it, most, most of the time we're used to seeing medications require several days to several weeks. And in the case of the classic antidepressant drugs that we've been talking about, the SSRIs, the SNRIs, it really does take quite a long time for them to work. With ketamine, the results are seen literally within 30 to 45 minutes, and they're sustained as well. When you say sustained, what does that mean? Like what, like how long or how often do they have to come back? Or this, The results are typically sustained for weeks to months. Every patient's different. I've seen people get results for many months. I've seen people relapse after maybe two to four weeks, typically in people who haven't done a treatment of six at the beginning, but then we treat them with follow-up ketamine infusions, booster infusions to help keep them where they want to be. And it's just a commitment of about 45 minutes. We do these infusions over 45 minutes, maybe to an hour. We have a, a very healthy respect for the individuality of each patient. As you can imagine, all of our brains are are structured differently, uh, both from a, uh, an anatomic and, and physiologic basis. And some people are, are, are short, some people are very tall. Most people are sort of in the middle in terms of height. It works the same way with ketamine infusion. Some people, most people need the standard dosage. Some people need a little bit more, some people need a little bit less. And we take, um, we take that individuality into, into great consideration in terms of measuring people's needs and, and treating them accordingly. And what about the the long term outcomes? I'm, I'm I'm thinking someone comes into your office and does this, and do are they doing this for five years, six years, ten years, or is it an ongoing? Or is it do they do the treatment and then the depression resolves? Or how, how what is that like? We haven't been doing this long enough, honestly, to be able to answer that question okay. in the way that you'd like, in the way that I'd like. However, based on my experience and based on the experience of many of my colleagues who have been doing this as long as I have, it does appear that people need these infusions on a semi-regular basis. And one of the, one of the elements that we've added to our practice in the last several months is that we also have a subscription program for patients who don't want to wait until they develop a relapse of their depression, where you can come in literally every month for free, as long as you pay for the subscription for, let's say, a year or two, and, and get an infusion so that you can mitigate against the possibility of a relapse before the relapse occurs. But relapses are very common. It does occur. The same is true with any drug. If you take a drug on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then you forget to take it the rest of the week, it may not work so well. It's the same thing with ketamine. The, the beauty of ketamine is that the results are so long lasting that they're, they're not like most medications that you have to take every single day. Uh, with in this case, you're talking every month or so. Right, right. So a lot, a lot less. What? Okay. So let's go back a little bit. Um, you were going to talk about how, how does it impact the brain and with someone who's struggling with depression or PTSD or anxiety, how does ketamine interact? Yeah, with with our nervous system. The way it works neurologically is that unlike SSRIs, which primarily focus on serotonin, unlike SNRIs that primarily focus on norepinephrine, the you know the get up and go hormone, ketamine works on the glutamate system, which is a completely different system in the brain, and it is thought by some neurobiological scientists to be a major 
pathway and what regulates mood, depression, anxiety, a system of equi- a feeling of equanimity, a feeling of, of calmness and relaxation. It is thought that this glutamine, glutamate system is much more pervasive than that for serotonin and norepinephrine. Okay. And it may be why ketamine is making such an impact because ketamine uses the, the glutamate system, unlike the other older drugs. Also, talking about what I'm thinking too is it, what are the risks that are associated with ketamine? Because at one point you said there there was a history of abuse. I've you know I've heard it. I've heard back in the past. You know heard it. You know special K. in the nineties. Yeah, like, yeah, that's right. Special K. It was called special exactly. K, and and people would abuse it. What's the risk there for people, especially people who are coming in and they've been struggling with an addiction? This is definitely a big concern for them. How would you answer that? There's no known addictive potential of of ketamine. Let me uh, just discuss that for a minute. Most medications, when patients uh, become addicted to them, think about opioids, narcotics. We're living through a a, a major opioid crisis in the United States. People have, let's say, chronic pain or even not so chronic pain, and they get prescribed a, a medication by their physician, they can't stop taking it. They lose control. They, they usually get some kind of euphoric effect and they just can't stop taking it. It becomes very reinforcing when you, when you take it. That's not known to be the case with ketamine. Now, we talked earlier about the use of ketamine, the, the abuse of ketamine uh, in a way that wasn't intended. That's the definition of abuse is to use a drug in a way that the drug wasn't intended to be used. That's, that's classic abuse. But abuse and addiction are different. In the case of ketamine, abuse is where you go into a nightclub, somebody hands you some ketamine to use, and you use it, you get get some kind of buzz. That's that's abuse. However, the reinforcing potential of the drug isesn't seen. Uh, People don't tend to to habitually use ketamine and then use more and more of ketamine like they do with narcotic medications. And so from that standpoint, it's very safe. And the fact that that ketamine is now thought to be useful for addiction disorders is is paradoxically such a uh, such a, a great new development because you're concerned about it, about ketamine becoming abused uh, or I'm sorry be, uh, the, the the consideration that patients may become addicted to ketamine and, and the discovery that it can actually be used for addictions is 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 sublime right right. Definitely. Um, what about, um, you'd also mentioned because of the opioid crisis, and, and I've had a lot of clients come in struggling with opioid addiction, and it came out of a pain issue. They had chronic back pain, and, and a doctor gave them an opioid. And then, you know, five years later, they're in my office struggling to stop. And so, you know, you mentioned some of the write up that you had given me before, talked about treating chronic chronic pain with ketamine. I would love to know more about that too. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. In the 90s, uh, right around the time I finished my training, there was this message that was d- delivered by the academic community that while opioids can be abused and uh, can be potentially dangerous, if somebody has legitimate chronic pain, think about a herniated disc, low back pain, pain shooting down the leg, difficulty walking, uh, you're tripping over your right foot. That's called foot drop. You just use some opioid medication to make you feel ba- better. And the pervasive thought, believe it or not, back in the early 90s was that nobody gets addicted to opioids as long as you're using them for appropriate reasons. Well, we, we now know that that is absolutely untrue, that many patients, perhaps as, as many as 15%, 
uh, the patients in my practice who we see initially will go on to become addicts uh, or to become addicted to opioids. And so we have to be very careful about prescribing and we have to be very careful to whom we prescribe. We have to limit quantity, et cetera. And the beautiful thing about ketamine is that it, it actually can be useful for treating these addiction disorders. Okay. How, how so? Like if someone's coming in with addiction, how, how would ketamine help with that? It's, it, it, wor- it, it works probably in the same way that it works for chronic pain. And that is felt to be using the so-called NMDA receptor, which is a receptor in, uh, in the neurons in our brains that help regulate mood. They also help regulate pain. Uh, so for example, let's say you have a, an injury. Let's say you, you trip and fall and you, you, you hurt your knee. Maybe you break your kneecap. It's very, very painful. But eventually, you know, your kneecap, your patella heals either surgically or, or with time with, with uh, conservative therapy. And eventually the pain goes away, right? Same thing with, um, you know, just about any kind of acute trauma, like a fracture, very painful for a short period of time. It's extremely painful. But then over the course of time, over the course of several weeks to several months, it gets better. Well, it turns out to some of the chronic painful entities that I treat uh, and have treated in my practice over the years, that pain doesn't get better. In fact, it gets worse. Why is that? Well, it turns out that our nervous systems are hooked up using an accelerator and also using a brake. Think about your car. Would you ever drive your car with one foot in the accelerator and one foot in the brake? No, that'd be crazy. But that's the way our nervous, our central nervous systems are hooked up. And it turns out that all of the, the so-called nociceptive afferent traffic, i.e. the painful sensations that we experience in the periphery from our kneecap in this example, goes through the spinal cord up to the brain and says, ouch, that really hurt. And it's still hurting. And then three, four weeks later, a month, two months later, it's a lot better because her body heals. Well, it turns out that with chronic painful entities like herniated discs, low back pain, arthritis of the spine, those noxious signals continue to be delivered through the spinal cord up to the brain, and it never stops. And what happens is the break, the inherent break in her nervous system that calms that traffic down normally and says, okay, this hurts, but it's not that bad, Mr. Brain. You know, calm down. We're all hooked, hooked up that way so that the break prevents too much noxious traffic of, of neurologic signals to come to the brain. So it turns out that with it, it turns out that the brakes get stripped over the course of time when you have an injury or you have a disorder that's causing, in this case, low back pain for many years. And and the ability of those negative neurons to modulate the painful signals becomes lost, the brakes get stripped, and the pain becomes worse than ever. And for that reason, a lot, a lot of patients who have these kind of painful entities require opioids uh, at much larger doses and for a much longer period of time than we would like if we don't do anything else. And, and, and we do in, in pain management. We, we, treat, we try to treat the root cause of the pain rather than just treating with opioids. And so how does that all happen? Well, it's thought to be due to the NMDA receptor that helps perpetuate those painful signals. So if, if there are a way of turning off the NMDA receptor, you might be able to make a major impact in terms of that chronic pain that just keeps getting worse and worse. And there are medications, there are old medications like methadone, which is a narcotic. It's a painkiller, but it also has an anti-NMDA property that shuts down that NMDA receptor so that this negative traffic comes up through the spinal cord doesn't get delivered to the brain to the same degree as it does uh, ordinarily when one isn't taking methadone. 
So ketamine, like methadone, ketamine is not a narcotic, but like methadone, it also negatively affects the MDA receptor. In that manner, it is thought to be very useful for treatment of chronic pain. I've, I've seen patients who have had multiple back surgeries, multiple nerve blocks that just haven't done very well and are still really debilitated. And then ketamine really just kind of turns them on and, and helps relieve the pain. It doesn't cure the in, in, initial problem. Ketamine isn't a cure, but it's an outstanding treatment modality to help people get through and to modulate the pain in such a way that their lives can be made much more pleasant, much more uh, much less unbearable, I should say. Right. And yeah, what, you know, working with clients who have that chronic pain, it's so, I mean, I had back surgery myself and I can tell you living with pain is no fun. And luckily I, I was lucky. I think I was one of the lucky ones because I had uh, surgery and it, and it actually took the pain away, <laughs> which was really, really good. I feel, I feel really lucky. But during that time, oh my gosh, living with chronic pain was, was awful. And I would look for any, any way to get out of it. Well, and you're lucky too, because not everybody who has surgery does so well. A lot of my patients have yeah. had multiple back surgeries and they haven't helped. In fact, they've gotten worse yeah. since, since the surgery. Right. So that, that is definitely really promising. So it kind of shuts that signal down or slows that signal down. Correct. And gives, gives some relief to the person who has that, that pain. I mean, that sounds, that sounds, uh, that sounds really, really positive and good. So what else would you, anybody's out there listening to this podcast, what would you want to tell them? Anything else that you think people should know about this treatment or should be informed about it? Well, people who are depressed oftentimes feel very alone. They get, uh, they feel alienated from their families because of the lack of motivation and the loss of the loss of enjoyment of life, the loss of motivation to do what they used to do. They, they oftentimes feel Feel very alone. We're here to tell our patients that you don't have to feel alone. You don't have to give up. There is treatment. There is promise, and and we're here to to help. Oh, thank you, Dr. Sawyer. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. I think this is going to be really helpful to our listeners. Of course, thank you. If people want to know more information about this or find out more information about you, where can they go and find that? We're online uh, at uh, PacificAcademy.com. And you can reach us uh, here in our beautiful office in Beverly Hills at area code 424-332-5550. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast and sharing this information and, you know, sharing alternatives that people generally don't know about. I just, uh, they don't know there. there's so many more options out there now for help and treatment to deal with some of our, uh, I guess, hurt and suffering that life brings us sometimes and uh, to have a different way out. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Dwayne. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. Once again, rate and review us in iTunes. If you haven't done so, I really appreciate it. And it really helps get us a lot of exposure. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 65. Also, don't forget to join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everybody, I hope you have a wonderful day and I will see you on the next episode.
It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.